This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 19th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And tonight, we have the enormous privilege of having Jeanette Walls with us. She's the author of four books, most notably... The Glass Castle, which was a New York Times bestseller for almost seven years. The Silver Star, Half Broke Horses, and Dish, How Gossip Became the News and News Became Just Another Show. She was a writer for New York Magazine and Esquire and MSNBC and several other publications and sites. And it's an enormous pleasure, Jeanette, to have you at our Writers' Symposium tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jeanette, I think all of your books are remarkable for completely different reasons. They're all, they're all remarkable. In addition to the story that you tell of your upbringing in Glass Castle, let's start there. I was really struck by the tone of Glass Castle. And here, here's what I mean. When you describe, for instance, cooking those hot dogs when you were three years old and you catch fire and you are burned and you need skin grafts and you're in the hospital for six weeks and your father breaks you out like like it's some scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, there's one thing you never describe in there and that's pain. You never get into the pain of that and you never describe fear. Why did you choose to approach it that way? I don't really remember the pain of being burned. I, don't, I remember the heat. I remember the, the fear. But I don't remember the pain. And, and I, you have to be true to your memory. And I don't remember... I wasn't even going to include that scene, to tell you the truth. It was my no, husband. You weren't going to include it. It's, no, it's my, jaw-dropping. My husband, you know, I, it, it was something that happened to me when I was three years old. And I said, well, and I was discussing the book with my husband. I said, you know, it's not that big a deal. I'm okay. I got a couple of scars. I can never wear a bikini, but I'm too pale anyway. You know, big deal. And he said, Jeanette, it's a big deal. Trust me. Trust me. I think a three-year-old catching fire is probably worth noting. I think that sometimes we don't have much perspective on our own stories. And so my husband said, write down, write the scene. And, and, it, and then I did, and I was a little shocked when I read it back. I think we all know things that we don't realize that we know. In the process of writing, there's something kind of magic about it. I talk about the magic of storytelling. Because... The process of writing is the process of thinking. And, you know, these thoughts that go around in your head and, and you kind of replay them. And I think sometimes we maybe fictionalize things or leave out the bad parts. And then you put, you put it down on paper and you realize, huh, am I being really honest about this? So you're forced to confront it. And I don't remember the pain. I, I remember wow. the heat. Sure. Um, I remember screaming for my mother. But I, yeah. I, but I don't remember. The, I remember the smell very vividly. But not, not really, and I, I knew I was on fire. I could feel something was happening to my stomach. I could remember that. My side, rather, my, my skin yeah. 
I knew something was going on. Well, yeah, but you do the same thing throughout the whole book. For for instance, with your parents. They raised you in what might be described a bizarre way. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Empty promises, alcoholism, narcissism, running from the law. And your dad took you into a cage to pet a cheetah at the zoo. But there's not a whiff of judgment about them. Not a whiff. I sensed no anger. Well, I, he, well, okay. Now, hang on. There's more. Mm-hmm. He, he, he throws you into the water so you can learn how to swim. No anger. You're eating sticks of lard <laughs> because there's no food. There's no anger. Your dad steals the money that you've been saving, and he pimps you out at a bar. After, and then after you tell your mom that your uncle groped you, he, she says, oh, he's so lonely. I think I'd be a little bit angry. You know, um, first of all, that was the only reality I knew when I was a child. So it, it seemed kind of normal. I mean, I, I didn't have any basis for comparison. I think that among, my father was bizarre in many ways, but I think he had elements of genuine genius. And one of, one of them was mythologizing not only himself, but his family. And I thought he did an excellent job convincing me that we were special that we were special and that, you, how slick is this? Normal kids couldn't put up with this, but you're so strong it doesn't bother you. You don't have any way out, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, normal kids get Christmas presents. Yeah. He gives you a planet. But you're special, so this won't bother you. Oh, yeah, you're right. So it was, it was an incredibly brilliant, self-serving um, device that made, me, that made him feel good about himself, that made me feel good about myself. I bought into it. My brother didn't. I don't think my older sister did entirely either. But I completely bought in. Why do we subscribe to myths? Because we need them. And, right. and I bought into that. Now, by the time I was 13, and my father kind of pimped me out... That was when the mythology kind of stopped. You knew what was happening. I knew what was happening at that point. And it was less anger than disappointment. Yeah, yeah. It was le- I never doubted that my father loved me. But that episode made me realize, as, I believe he loved me in his damaged way. Anybody who's ever loved an alcoholic or any kind of addict knows they will break your heart. And you can love them with all your heart, but until they love themselves properly, you can't help them. And I think I realized that at that moment. I, I love my father to this day, and I fantasize on some wacky level that if he were still around, maybe I could help him. Of course I couldn't. But that episode was the worst experience in my life because it made me realize, as much as I love him and believe he loved me, he was never going to build me a glass castle. He was never going to, not only was he not going to protect me, he was going to put me in harm's way. Worst thing mm-hmm. that ever happened to me, also the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I, I believe that the worst experience in the world has a valuable gift wrapped inside if you're willing to receive it. And that episode made me realize I got to change my situation. I cannot mm-hmm. change my father. Well, yeah, I think that's when you started working and saving money. I got to get out of here. I got to do something. Making a plan. Because I believed from that episode he was trying to bring me to his level. Yeah. And I I couldn't do that because he'd also given me, in all that wackiness and all of that mythologizing, a belief in myself and a sense of self-esteem. And I believe if you get those two things, if you get 
a sense of self-esteem and a love of education that you can make it through just about anything. I really wow. believe that. Okay. And I believe he gave me those things. And that's why I've never been bitter or angry. I believe he loved me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that a lot of kids don't get. Well, yeah, people who would have what we would call a normal yes. childhood oftentimes don't have I believe the that. kind of love that you got from I believe that. I, I never doubted that he thought the world of me. And he told me I could do whatever I wanted and be whatever I wanted. And that's extraordinary. And he made me believe that. I never doubted that I would go to college. It was hmm. never a question in my wow. mind. Um, okay. and, and I think that that's something... I also never doubted that I would do okay, that, that I had the resources that I needed to get myself out of a bad situation. You know, Glass Castle is such an unusual story, and yet it just draws people to that book and to you, even though their story doesn't even come close to how wacky yours is. And, and, and yet it has resonated. I mean, how else do you explain something that's been on the New York Times bestseller list for almost seven years? Yeah, I think one of the reasons people like it is they encounter a family that's even weirder than their own. It's like, <laughs> yeah. what a relief! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that could be. Or it, it, it reminds me, Mary Carr used to say uh, that the, the definition of a dysfunctional family is any, any family that has more than one person in it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, you know, I would all... I'm also shocked by the number of people there are like me out there. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many times people come up to me afterwards, and very often they'll wait until the crowds are gone, and they'll say, your story is my story. Wow. And they'll roll up their sleeve, and they'll show me where they got burned, cooking oatmeal for themselves when they were three. Or, you know, they might have been raised in great wealth, but their father reminds me, them of my father. We've, we've got something in common. They've got a wacky bipolar mom for an artist. So mm-hmm. the, the details don't have to be identical. But a lot of people, you know, it, the, and it's the magic of storytelling that if one person has the wackiness or the craziness to go out and tell the story, you know, it gets other people to open up about their that's stories. True. That's true. And, and, and so that's why, you know, it's really not about me. It's about, about the storytelling and the love and... I, I guess you could say forgiveness, but I, I'm not nuts about the concept of forgiveness. It's not like I forgive my parents. I don't forgive them because they are who they are. They were who they were. Mom can't take care of herself. How could I expect her to take care of me? Mm-hmm. And if I resent her or am angry with her for that, it's not going to do me one bit of good. That's true. She had certain gifts to offer, I believe, a sense of optimism. Some people say she's in denial. You know, she'd deny that. But she, you know, she's... The, <laughs> she, mom sees the good in every situation. Okay. Well, I, I just love the perspective that you've taken from this, this upbringing that you had. You never claim, you know, the victimhood or anything like that. In fact, you, you gave one great example of, of perspective. I think it was when you were at O'Hare Airport and there, flight delay, flight delay, flight delay. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody was wigging out. Do you remember what you said? <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I said. But, you know, it's so funny. One of the gifts of having a childhood like I did is it puts things in perspective. This is nothing. Flight delays, 
this is nothing. Well, you have you have bathrooms, you have food. Calm down. <laughs> you know, you got flush toilets, honey. You got nothing to complain about. <laughs> you know, it, life is good. I can go to a grocery store and buy anything I want. That's a miracle to me. I will never take running water for granted. You know, it's it's a miracle. You turn the little knob, and this hot water comes Stuff out. Stuff comes out. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I got me a thermostat, honey. I just move that little old thing over, and it gets warm. This is a miracle to me. Oscar Wilde once said, a necessity is a luxury once sampled. And I'm afraid there's some truth to that. I think that we're so, we, we are so lucky in this country. We have so much. The only problem is that sometimes we take it for granted. Yeah. And sometimes we think we can't survive without these things. And... You know, people say, oh, you're so strong, you're so resilient, I could have never survived. Of course you could. Of course you yeah, could. Yeah. I just had the great blessing to have a crappy childhood and know that I can. <laughs> I'm, not, people, I'm not sure I've heard that sentence before. Other, I had that. other people, they got to pay to go off to Outward Bound to learn <laughs> these things, you know? <laughs> I got it for free, you know? <laughs> no, and, and I think, you know, tell me if I've got this, uh, if I've got this accurate. You uh, you knew you were going to write about this at some point. Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. I mean, you were afraid to, obviously. You thought you were going to get kicked out of the club and, and people wouldn't like you. But you got a little thumb in the back to do this because, as I recall, the Village Voice had met your dad and was doing a story. That's right. And mm-hmm. here you are, this celebrity journalist. Uh-huh. And is this true that the Church of Scientology had, was, was working on, a, 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 was trying to dig some dirt up about you and found out about your parents? The Village Voice had this columnist, um, Stan Mack, who wrote Real Life Funnies, and he'd follow wacky people around, overheard dialogue, these, these comic strips with these stranger-than-fiction characters, and he did the whole series on my parents, and it was hilarious. And... Because he just found him on the street. He just right? found him, and there were yeah. these real characters. My father is so eminently quotable, and um, <laughs> and he's just this this character, and he's this great. You know, he'd go on all these adventures, and then get drunk and fall on his face, and get in fight with cops, and all that. And it was just incredible material. And then one day, Dad started bragging on me, and he called up and said, "Is this true?" And I I had just gotten this job at a sort of snooty magazine, and I, I, I said, I don't, I don't have any right to ask you this, but please don't include me. And he paused, and he said, I understand. He said, this must be so weird for you. And I don't know why he was good enough to do that, but it really got me to thinking, you know, that, huh, this could come out. But then, not too long ago, I, I was writing an item on, on Scientology, and I, they got, I got him a little PO'd, and... Um, not the group you want to get on the wrong side of. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm such a yard dog. It just, I kind of love that stuff. And, and you know, and that's one of the reasons I was good at what I did, because people all the time threaten me. Ah, we're going to sue you. You better watch out behind your back. I got beat up wherever I lived. This was nothing new. It's like, yeah, you and whose army? So I get these things. I was fearless. I was just like so. And, and one time, though, the Scientologists, they... they started an investigation of me. And my first reaction is, I've always been very fastidious about not taking free dinners or free lunches or gifts that people try to send journalists and always send them back. And so my first reaction is, I have nothing to hide. Oh, kind of do that. Actually? <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, you know, my first, then my next reaction was, they have no right. And then I thought, of course they do. Of course they do. 
it, the truth's out there. You know, they have as much right to investigate me as I do to investigate them. And I thought, you know, I better come a little bit clean on this, hadn't hmm. I? So everything, everything is good. You know, I, and I often say everything is both a blessing and a curse. And so having, and it's, it's up to us which we choose to focus on, having Scientology after me, it could have been horrible. But on the other hand, it forced me to be kind of honest. So yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did they ever no. come up with anything they, and they expose didn't. you? Um, well, no, they didn't. Um, somebody told me it was what was called a sloppy investigation, meant to intimidate me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so okay. I know they were snooping around about it, but I guess they okay. didn't dig too deep. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I was really struck also in Glass Castle with, you know, here you are, you're just kind of trying to figure out your place in the world, <laughs> and you found it when you started working on your high school newspaper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you found, didn't you? I mean, I didn't did. you feel like you, you had kind of found the I missing... Loved, I loved journalism. I, you know, you didn't even a, know it, though, until you got there, I, right? No, I didn't. But I've always loved storytelling. And, you know, I, 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 I'm so curious about why are things the way they are? And I love hearing about what the way things really are. But beyond that... You know, journalism, it it gave me kind of a green card into the world that I was never allowed into, the world of popular kids, the the world of kids who belonged at the dances, at the ball games. And as long as I had my little camera, my little notepad, I kind of belonged there. You belonged. I had a reason for being there. I didn't have a date. I didn't have any friends. I can't speak to you. I'm working. You know, and it was, it was my, um, it, it was my by armor for a long time, sure. well into my, my 30s, and, and until I wrote the book, it was sort of my facade that I erected, you know, oh, Jeanette Wall's reporter, and it, right. it, it gave me an excuse for being around, but you know, the, the, the bizarreness of pursuing all these other stories while I was so vigilantly hiding my own, ultimately became sort of unbearable. You know, uh, it, in this high school newspaper, I just laughed out loud when I got to this part where you came up with this stellar idea to increase circulation <laughs> by, by just putting people's names and birthdays in there. Right? I'm because, shameless. I'm shameless. Exactly. But your, your, teacher, your teacher didn't think it was serious journalism, and your response was, and where is circulation? Circulation had skyrocketed because everybody wanted to see their name in the paper. You had some amazing instinct. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, it's the same instinct that brought me to write about gossip, so I'm not going to brag about it, you know. <laughs> I just sort of follow where the interests were. I just, you know, I'm, I'm very pragmatic. I'm a very pragmatic person, and that's one of the things my upbringing taught me wow. is just sort of the survival. You got it, you know, the lofty ideas and the... Ivory Tower are, are well and good, but you got to make a living. Yeah, and and I was also really struck by in in that experience, you really got the feeling that the, the the sort of the fire for journalism when you interviewed Chuck Yeager. Oh, Chuck Yeager. Because yeah. I mean, that was speaking of your ticket into greatness. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was somebody, and you got to hang out with him. And he was also my father's um, idol. And it was just it was such a perfect moment because you know he was somebody who grew up in the hollows of West Virginia. And he not only escaped, but he made it big. He, you know, he went up into space. He broke the sound barrier. And the, the, the beautiful symmetry of me interviewing this man who my father always wanted to be um, and him helping me interview him. You, you know, how could I possibly hate a man like my father who prepared me for that? Mm-hmm. 
you know, who, who gave me that gift of, of not only wanting to do that, but the tools to do it. Sure. Well, then you, be, you became a reporter in, in Brooklyn at age 19. And I, I think I'm right with this because I think I read Glass Castle pretty carefully. This is the only time in the book where you said you were happy. Huh. You got me there. <laughs> I mean, but, but you felt a sense of... Oh, yeah. I loved being a reporter. I made it like yeah. $125 a week, and I thought it really made it. I hadn't gone to college yet. Um, and I thought there was no reason to go to college. I got myself a great job. I was out covering, I was covering politics, writing about food. I'm the least qualified person in the world to write about food. <laughs> but I was writing about it anyway, taking pictures. I was working until four o'clock in the morning. And at the time I was living in the South Bronx and I had to take the subway back in, in New York City in the late seventies. And I got mugged so many times, but I always, I always fought back because I'm a fool. But, um, I, I, I just, I loved it. I loved being a journalist, and it was, but it was my editor who said, you need to go to college. Wow. You know, as, as bizarre as your family was, they, did, they were readers. Oh, voracious you know? readers. And, and, and there's, there's this scene, and I, I want to hear your, your take on, on them as readers and who they quoted, but again, I'm just thinking, you and your dad would read the dictionary. Read the dictionary. <laughs> and then... If you disagreed... If he disagreed. If he, he disagreed. I didn't disagree with the dictionary writers. He would disagree. That's wrong. And, and he would send letters to the dictionary Yeah, and then you guys editors. would write letters. <laughs> and and, he, and he, would, he would start up a correspondence. They would respond and he'd write back. And then they'd eventually get a little bit tired. But he was one of those cranks who was all the time calling up and disputing things with, you know, about, about the way that something was done. But yeah, yeah, he would... He would you always had books. Always, always. And, but I have to tell you, um, and I don't even know if I wrote about this, but I didn't go into my first bookstore until I was in my early 20s. Huh. It was always libraries. And I will always be indebted to libraries. And I remember the first time, yes, libraries, yay. What would we do without them? And it was weird walking into a bookstore. Oh, this is kind of like a library, except you pay the fine before you get the book. <laughs> 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 but we all, our houses was always, our houses, wherever we lived, our cars were always filled with books. Sometimes it was because we didn't exactly return them. But very often it was because um, the, the library sells. We just always had books. Always. Do you remember when uh, you saw a television program for the first time? I think it was uh, the program Lost in Space. Lost in Space. And you came back and told your mom about it? I couldn't believe anything was so amazing as this television that, uh, that this family had. And these amazing programs would appear on it. And I ran back and told mom the plot of it. And she was sort of like, oh, that's... That's trash. That's it. And she took out some H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe and started reading it. And I thought, dang, mom's kind of right. That, that you know, danger, danger stuff was pretty exciting. <laughs> but, uh, but wow, wow, mom's Yeah, bring out a Ray right. Bradbury yeah, and yeah, you got exactly, something. Exactly, exactly. Wow. You know, several times you have talked about uh, the book A Tree Grows in Brooklyn uh, that you read when you were, when you were 10. That's 440 pages. <laughs> you, you read a book that long when you were 10? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I cannot remember not being able to read. When I was three years old, my, my, my parents were baffled. My mother, my father was convinced I could read, but mom couldn't. She didn't know whether I'd memorized most of the Dr. Seuss books or, or could read them. Hmm. I can recite 
most of Starbelly snitches to this day. That will be later in the program. <laughs> yeah. that, that's where we do the dance. Yeah. We're doing a dance We're to that. We're doing an interpretive yeah. dance. But no, um, uh, I was reading books without pictures, as we called them, from a very early age. And, but, but, but I was the slowest reader in my family. I, uh, the other, uh, my brother blows me away with reading, hmm. and my older sister as well. I was, I, they were even more voracious. And my mother, the, the, the amount of reading she does to this day is flabbergasting to me. Hmm. And she remembers everything she reads. Wow. But back to Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Yeah. This is about something that the attempts were to try to eradicate it, stamp it out, right? But it kept, if I got the right book? The attempts the, it, to step out, stamp out yeah, the but tree? Yeah, but it keeps... But it the keeps, tree, yeah, there's this wonderful um, description she has of, of the, this tree that grows no matter, you know, people... It's considered a weed tree. Yeah. And it grows and it grows through cracks in the sidewalk. It grows when there's not enough water. And people hate it because it's so common. But if it weren't so common, people would think it was beautiful. And of course, it was a metaphor for her. And for those well, of us... what about you? For those of... Well, I really related to this girl who was not popular, not pretty. She didn't have a lot of friends, but she loved books. And her love of reading... Oh, and she loved her drunken old daddy. And um, th- those two things rescued. They got her out of the situation. Hmm. And I, I'm just amazed that that's what struck you, you know, at 10 years old. I mean, you obviously connected at some oh, level. Oh, yeah. She was my best friend. Yeah. She was my only friend. Yeah. yeah. You know, you have said that everyone should write a memoir. I kind of think so. I think everybody has a story. I, no, I, I, yeah, but they shouldn't write a, a memoir. You know, don't, don't you think we have enough? No, no. I think everybody's got a story, and you don't have to publish it. Oh, okay. But everybody, okay, you could. No, everybody, right, that no. relieves my mind considerably. Uh, I, you know, everybody has a story, and it doesn't have to be over-the-top wacky, but I think that one of the reasons I wrote... Half broke horses is because so many people said I could never survive what you did. I, you're so strong and resilient, and I, I'm flattered by the comment. But as I said, it's it's nonsense. And if you think you can't, couldn't survive without indoor plumbing and all these wonderful modern conveniences we have, think back a few generations when nobody had these things, mm-hmm. and we all come from really hardy stock. We're all really resilient, and we just have all these luxuries now. But I'm a big fan of not only telling your story, but if possible, finding the stories. That preceded you. There's these wonderful patterns that emerge. There's a reason for the things are the way that they are. And very often the people who have the most amazing stories are most reluctant to tell them. But even if, it, even if you had a, a very easy childhood, there's something, there's something that needs to be passed on to your children. They should know your story. Isn't it a little presumptuous to think that anyone would want to read something that, you know, about your your own life or... or I'm, well, I I'm thought just, it was presumptuous for me to write it and look what happened yeah, but, to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, I, but I'm... It just seems like there are... A, I've read a lot of memoirs where I just think, why did this person think we would be interested in this? <laughs> it wasn't yours, by the way, but... but you know, I... I am I just I'm, being too critical here? I'm interested in every memoir, but I think the ones that aren't interesting, people just didn't get deep enough. People weren't really ready to talk about what they should have been talking about. I have a friend an acquaintance who worked on her memoir for 10 years, had the most fascinating story. And I was wondering, how is she going to deal with this? There's so many weird, ugly things that went on in her life. And, and she became a product of them and did destructive things to her friends and her family. 
she came out with a 121-page memoir that just ignored all the stuff. Oh. And, and I think that that's, that's where people fault it. There's always a story. There's always something interesting. It does, like I said, it doesn't have to be hair-raising or, or riveting, but we've all got a story. I, I, I believe that. Okay. You've also said that anyone who writes a memoir is being asked to be called a liar. <laughs> well, you know, um, people challenge you. People challenge You've been challenged you. on Glass Castle. Oh, plenty. yeah, a number of times. It's sort of funny because my husband really had to pull some of this stuff out of me. I was ashamed. I was, I was, I was convinced that once people knew the truth about my wretched, dirty little past and some of the things I had to do to survive, that I would be a pariah. And my husband read a couple of early versions and said, you skimmed over this. What really happened? Hmm. And, um, and I had to come clean. I'm, I'm very blessed to have had a, you know, a, a husband who's a, a journalist and a good editor. And, um, and so when it came out, one of the very first interviews I did, Diane Bream, NPR, and the first caller said, fascinating story. I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> Not even the or of, but, you know... Um, at, and I was I was floored by that reaction because I was really embarrassed by that story. Why would I lie about all these? But I, you know, but there have been some really bizarre, you know, these stories about poverty. People come out with memoirs and they've lied about them. Right. There's, they've there's lied. A, there's, they a big... that, there's a big list of people who have made these things up. And one of these people, she wrote about having grown up as a member of a gang in South L.A. and raised by an African-American woman and she's part Native American or something like that. She was a valley girl. She lied about all this stuff. And her sister turned her in. Her sister saw this interview in the New York Times and said, this didn't happen to her. She grew up in the San Fernando. Why would somebody say this? And in her defense, she said, well, I felt it was emotionally true. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That doesn't count. I'm going to try that. That's fiction. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's yeah. fiction. And if you must tell something that didn't happen but feels true, God bless you, go do it, but label it fiction. But, yeah. but yeah, people have challenged. This could have never happened. I refuse to believe this. You know, you get called a liar. That's okay. It's going to happen. It's, it, it sort of comes with the territory. I Actually, I welcome... People saying, could this really have happened? I find this hard to believe. You know, it's, it's, it's a little wacky. And if it didn't happen in your sphere, I can understand people saying, really, really? But inevitably, when I'm at an event and somebody says, I just don't believe this, no man could be as wonderful and as horrible as your father. Somebody else in the audience will say, you didn't live with an alcoholic, obviously. Mm -hmm. So as many people who've challenged my story, there are as many who said, this could have been my story. So yeah, you know, a story should be challenged because some people out there are liars. So we should challenge a story. I I don't like being called a liar because I'm not. But if somebody wants to say to call in something yeah. to question, God bless them. You know, they're, they're allowed to do that. Wow. And, and that doesn't... You know, I don't like being called a liar. I don't mind somebody saying, did this really happen? Really? Really? You know, my husband did that. Are you sure that a cheetah licked your hand? Really? Really? <laughs> and, and this... I had the same question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and in my experience, this, this sort of thing happened all the time. My yeah. father kind of loved wild animals. He was always trying to get me to love them and, and not be afraid of them within, within reason. And it's just, it's the way I grew up. I was also at an event one time where people were saying, you were an abused child. And 
I don't see it that way, but I understand why some people do. And they say, anybody who throws, you know, being thrown into the water to learn to swim, that was abuse. And then somebody else in the audience stood up and said, I was, and this was an older woman. I was taught to swim in this way, and many of my, all of my siblings and friends were this way. That's the way a lot of older folks were taught to swim. And it's a matter of perspective. And, and your mom, after reading this, she was kind of okay with this, wasn't she? No? She didn't like the description of her driving, but other than that, she was kind of okay yeah, with it. Yeah. She said, that's just like you to side with your father. Your father would always make fun of my driving yeah. as well. And, of and all said, the things you said about her, that was, the, <laughs> that was the one. She said, she said, I didn't gamble. I said, Mom, I didn't write that you gamble. And she said, yeah, but you wrote that your father and I would disappear all night to a, a, a casino People who read that are going to think I was gambling, but I wasn't gambling. I was just trying to make sure your father didn't gamble away the money. But then I realized that to a seven-year-old child, that's what it must have looked like. And you had to write the truth as you saw it. And I thought, that's pretty fabulous. That With Mm -hmm. all the things I saw, mom, for all her faults, sees that, you know, the truth is sometimes different from different perspectives. Now, a reader who's smarter than I pointed out, you think your mother would be more concerned with what people would think of her for leaving her kids alone all night than than whether or not she's gambling. But my mother sees things... (laughs) In a certain way. And that's okay. That's okay. It, did she really say to you that she didn't think you'd amount to much? She said of all the kids, yeah, she did. She said that, you know, and I say this without false modesty, without anger or anything. My older sister was so brilliant, so brilliant. And so was my kid sister. My brother, strong, brave, all these things. I was just a hard worker. I was not the brilliant one. And, you know, there's been these interesting studies lately that telling children that they're talented is actually counterproductive, but telling them that they're good workers is, is, is productive. But, I, you know, it's, it's kind of okay. Mom, mom is mom. Yeah. She's just, she, you know, she just sees things differently. She doesn't, people have also said to, to mom, you must be so proud of her. And she'll say, not really. And, it, it, <laughs> and she doesn't mean that as an insult. It just, it, she feels she has nothing to do with it. And yeah. she kind of doesn't. In, in a way, she does by giving me... I mean, you know, the, the blessing of, of having... The curse of having a mother who doesn't take care of you is that you got to learn to take care of yourself. And right. the blessing is that you learn to take care of yourself. So I, I learned self-sufficiency at a very early age. I never... When I'm distressed or hurt, I never miss my mommy. I never, I, and I, I'll tell you another funny side effect. I don't associate food with comfort. Hmm. Many people, when they are feeling distressed or upset, they eat. Food and comfort don't go together with, for me. It's, it's almost the opposite. I, I, I don't like to eat when I'm busier or worried. Um, and it's only recently, because my husband's a good cook, that I've, he takes the food out of the cans and everything. He's real. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. What a guy. Yeah. <laughs> what a catch. He, he's, um, he's, he's got much more nurturing, not only than my mother did, but than I do. He's, he's got this sort of, and he grew up in a very lovely upper middle class. And I, when I met his mom and she was fussing and making lunch for us, I, I, I told him afterwards, I said, I can't give you that. I'm not going to give you a mother-in-law like that. I, I, I don't have that to offer. He said, I don't need it. <laughs> yeah. I got one already. Yeah. You, you know, the book Half Broke Horses made me appreciate your mom. 
Well, thank you. I, thank when you. I read that, I just thought, okay, I, I think I kind of get her. Thank you. That's exactly why I wrote it. That's I, exactly yeah. why I wrote it, because that's why I'm drawn, even though I called Half Broke Horses fiction. And it was readers. It was readers who kept saying, they'd say, I don't understand your mother. Your father, I understand. I understand alcoholism. Your mother's a mystery to me. Why would somebody who has a college education, who has the resources to lead a normal life, lead a life of chaos. So I tell them a little mm-hmm. bit about mom's childhood. And they'd say, your next book needs to be about your mother. And I resisted at first. But readers are smart. They're mm-hmm. really smart. And they kept on asking me that. And so I thought eventually, you know, by this time my mother, had, she was living with me in Virginia, not with me, but because I'm not a saint, but we put her out back. But... Um, <laughs> with and the half-broke horses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, with the half-broke horses, I didn't invite mom to Virginia for the purposes of exploiting her, but as long as she's there, what the heck? So <laughs> yeah. I was like, Ma, how would you feel about my writing as a story about you? And she was amazing. I tried mm. to interview a couple of people for their stories before, and they would always clam up. But Mom was phenomenal with her recall and, and with just being forthcoming about the stories. Well, and, and what an extraordinary woman your grandmother was. Yeah, what, yeah. And, and, I mean, she was a strong, strong woman who endured a lot and raised yeah. this other woman, uh-huh. your, your mom. And that whole scene, I felt like, kind of completed the picture yeah. Of, yeah. of what a bizarre person she was, but she came by it honestly. Yeah. Yeah, she did. You know, um, my grandmother, Lily, tough broad, and I say that with affection because I'm a lot like her. You know, just, she just, she endured and she did what you had to do. You, sh- you say you're more like her I'm than you are so your mom. More, oh, yeah. And that's why I ended up writing half-broke horses. It's one of the reasons I ended up writing half-broke horses in my grandmother's voice rather than my mother's voice. I'd intended the book to be about mom, and it was mom who said, no, it should be about her mother, my grandmother. And I'd intended to write it in my mother's voice, and as told to. Um, but I find it much easier to write in Lily's voice, even though I didn't know Lily that well. Um, and, and Lily had the more interesting life, and it was mom who kept on saying it, it needs to be about her mother. But I called it fiction because, yeah. uh, because it's, I don't know how much of it is true. Yeah, so, some of the things you just couldn't know. I right? couldn't know, yeah. yeah. And so then in the book Silver Star, here's, uh, there are some similarities yeah. to your yeah. own story in uh, Glass Castle. But one of the big differences in Silver Star, your a novel, is... Toward the end, when some terrible, terrible things happen to these girls, there is just so much love that just starts to inflate. I, I felt like inflated the, the town and, and the, fam- the family was loving. And, and when, those t- when the town turned out to help rescue those yeah, emus. The, the, you know, I live in a small town now. And I'm just so impressed, having been a city girl for so long, I'm so impressed with the love and the lack of competition among, among the townsfolks. And it's just, it, 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 and I think that there's a different mindset. Having lived in New York City for so many years where, and I'm not knocking New York, I'll, I'll, I'll always love New York. But I feel like it's an old boyfriend with whom I split amicably. I'll, you know, I'm, I always love it. Really happy to not be there anymore. Check them out on Facebook every yeah, now yeah, and exactly. then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, um, and, I've come to realize that it, it, in these towns, it's, it's, again, it's a pragmatic reason, but when one does well, everybody does well. And that's why people are so interested in other people's business. It's not a vicious... It, it, when one does bad, people will turn on you, too. They True. will turn on you in a heartbeat. But if, if you need help, and I've experienced this so many times, when you, people just come... I, I live in a farming community, and if somebody breaks your arm... 
everybody comes over and helps mow and, and, and farm because they know that they might break their arm one day. So it is a pragmatic thing. But you, but you write about love in such a convincing way, but I, I don't know. I, I kept thinking about how can you write about it in, in such a convincing way when it didn't seem like you were loved? Oh, I was always loved. Oh, really? No, no. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind. Okay. By my father. My mother, maybe, you know. <laughs> mom, mom, you know, she, in, in her way. But I, I think that, um, that, that, that that is where I got whatever good I, I have hmm. in this world, is, is because I felt loved. Wow. My brother said becoming a parent made him less sympathetic to mom and dad. He said, it's not that difficult to feed your kids. But becoming a teacher, he said, you know... Uh, you feed your kids, and then everything else comes after that. You don't, like, this is not something that you don't do for a couple of days because you don't have money. You feed your kids. Brian is a cop, or was a cop. Um, he's retired. He, he's now with the police, or he rather became um, a, a ninth-grade English teacher. And he's wow. such a good teacher. He was such a, he, in a rough area in Brooklyn, he was tell, told, if you can get these kids not to mug you, it's a miracle. Um, and... He loves the kids and they love him. And he's brought their reading scores way up. And he said, becoming a parent made him less sympathetic to mom and dad. Becoming a teacher made him appreciate mom and dad more. Hmm. He said what some of these kids were not given by their parents is staggering to him. He said he thought all kids grew up reading Greek myths, you know. And the fact that they had us reading at such an early age. Mm -hmm. I never asked a question of either of my parents with it, and heard a response that they were either too busy or didn't know. If they didn't know, we we went to the encyclopedia. We researched it. We, mm-hmm. you know, they always they were always there for us. So for whatever else I didn't have, I, I never doubted that. You at least had that. Oh yeah, okay. in spades. Okay. Now your your book Dish, yeah. your your very first one. We no, don't talk no, about that. No, why, okay, <laughs> no, why do you react that way? You know, I tried to write, I tried to write a deep book on a shallow topic. <laughs> and, no, no, no. I I thought it was actually pretty useful as a journalist. I thought you know, it was... as a journalist. Well, thank you. I tried to write a book. You know, I did not set out to write about celebrities. I that was never. I grew up without a television. I didn't know who celebrities were. Yeah. I didn't. Chuck I was, Yeager. Uh, Chuck Yeager was my celebrity. Right. Um, there were a couple of them, but not too many. Writers, you know, yeah. John Steinbeck. Yeah. Um, that w- that was my celebrity. So when I was put in this role and had to, and, and the first couple of items that I did, I tried to do them on when I went on uh, when I had an on air and online thing. I tried to write about movies and shakers, and I got a couple of thousand hits. And then I did a Britney Spears item, and I got two million hits. And it was kind of like running the birthdays in the newspaper. Exactly. (laughs) The die was cast. And it became fascinating to me, the public's fascination with these people who really haven't accomplished anything. They're just famous. They're well-known for being well-known. They're well-known. And some of them have some talent, but a lot of them don't have any. And just because we know about them, people want to hear. And it was the most amazing thing. Why are we so fascinated by these people? And so I, I, I kind of wrote a book about this. Co- there are celebrities who would call me and say, or other publicists would call me and say, my mother and I are going to get in a fight at the Ivy. <laughs> you know, and then you should be there. And then they would get in a fight with the paparazzi at the Ivy. Leave us alone. Why do you harass us? And I became convinced these celebrities, they're like drug addicts 
who complain about their addiction, but at the same time need it. The, the, right. the fame destroys them, but sustains them at the same time. Oh, and, and anyone who is a fan of Princess Diana should not read this book. No, because she was a genius, a genius about manipulating her public image. You know, she was a lovely woman in so many ways, but she was in a way that Prince Charles just never understood. The, she understood the importance of the media. The media, is, it is the conduit, no, less so now with Twitter and all this other stuff, but it was the conduit between, between celebrities and the public. So the way the media was controlled, it, it means everything. And, and, back, and so I did this whole history going back. It was thank, amazing. Well, thank God I didn't go back to... Fatty Arbuckle. I was going to start there, but I instead I started in the fifties. The way the, the the shifting in the power. Who controls this image? It started out being the studios, and and then it, it shifted to the celebrities, and then it shifted to the PR. And I was just fascinated because these are not just multi-million-dollar images. We're talking multi-billion-dollar industry, all built on. These people who don't really do anything. So it's all about this image. Yeah. Who is who is creating these images? And my role in it, at reporting on this stuff. What am I doing here? Do you? And as a, as a celebrity journalist, do you tell people the truth about who these people are, or do you sort of feed the image? And it's this fascinating dilemma that you have. And my, I was always on the like. Turn the, turn the feet to clay. I wanted to tell the behind-the-scenes story, but that's, then you lose access, and access is so important. So it's this constant dance that went on, and, and seeing it from the inside is like, oh, my gosh, this is so weird, and I'm part of it. I wanted to write a story about it. But plus the insatiable yeah. appetite we have insatiable. for Justin Bieber or Woody Allen or all things Kardashian. And anybody who runs a charity will tell you, Everybody hates celebrities. Everybody, oh, I don't, I don't care about celebrities. You cannot run a charity without a celebrity being attached to it. And that, that is what starts raising the money. And it's, it's weird and it's complicated, but we are fascinated by it. And, and I wanted to write sort of an expose because part of it was a huge mea culpa. I'm, a big, I'm part of this and I'm playing this game. And the first couple of times I walked the red carpet, I was like, this is really cool. And I'm interviewing out there, interviewing celebrities. And then you're faced with this dilemma. Do I give them the neat little soundbite or the actually intelligent thing that this celebrity just said? Hmm. You know, and, it's, it, it, and, and you start playing the game, too. And why yeah. am I doing this? I'm doing this to make a living. And, and I kind of started, at first I kind of loved it because I'm interviewing all of It's a of huge these. adrenaline hit. Yeah, and it was just the, the, the bizarreness of me with my background interviewing the most famous, fabulous, rich, powerful people in the world. And, and then being able to control what the public saw about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then a funny thing happened. Um, after The Glass Castle came out, I thought that it wouldn't be read and that I'd, I'd get fired or whatever. But what happened is celebrities started approaching me on the red carpet and saying, I've, they'd pull me aside, ask me to put down the microphone. They'd say, I really enjoyed your story. Your mother reminds me of my mother. Hmm. And... Sometimes they'd start crying, and I thought, dang it, I can't write anything mean about this person anymore. And it completely... They're a human being. They're a human being. <laughs> and I believe the truth will set you free, but the truth cannot be condensed into a snarky little paragraph. Even if it's accurate, it's not necessarily true. And I thought that writing 
the glass castle would get me fired from my job, but it made me quit my job. Because I, I, and I don't knock celebrity journalism, I don't knock people who follow it. It's, it's a very interesting game that all three parties, the public, the media, and the celebrities play. And it's a constant tug of war over who controls the image. That's all shifted since, since Twitter in a very, very interesting way. But, you know, some people want to believe the mythology. Some people want to get mm-hmm. behind the mythology. Sure. And speaking of celebrities, let's, let's talk briefly about the movie that we hope is being made of Glass Castle. Okay, uh, yeah. And, okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> And we're all about Jennifer Lawrence. We all love Jennifer Lawrence. However, if we could take just a moment and talk about the director. Oh. Oh. Destin, oh. Yes, okay. So Destin Daniel Cretton, I'm, a, an alum yes. of this institution, is directing this movie. So I am in love with Destin and I can say this because my, I think my husband's got a major crush on him too. The man is a genius. <laughs> He's a genius. I am, I've, I've, this is not the first time that this is maybe going to be turned into a movie. Paramount had it as well. Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston and, had it. Yeah, right, and, right. And, and Reese Witherspoon was going to star as me, and I, I, I was completely willing to let them do whatever they wanted with the script. They could have made me into a hoochie dance, and they were about to. It was, I mean, they were just pushing it in this, this really sort of romantic comedy direction that was just, it was, it was, and even I, with my sellout with birthdays and writing about Britney Spears, it just got to a point where I said, I can't live with this. I'm sorry. This is just, I can't do this. And then it got picked up by Gil Netter, wonderful, wonderful producer. Jennifer Lawrence heard about it. And Gil, and, 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 and Destin, uh, Daniel Cretton is on it. And he took this script and just took out everything phony in it. There were some Hollywood moments. He didn't want anything to do with that. I've been emailing him and, and talking to him. I think that this man, and this has nothing to do with my, I think he's going to revolutionize filmmaking. I think he's such a genius, and he's all about authenticity and trueness and, and the, the amazing contradictions that, where somebody can be both brave as all get out and terrified, where somebody can be cruel and gentle all at once. He really understands the, the contradictions inherited in everybody, and I, I am over the moon about his involvement in it. And I'm just, I'm, you know, with Hollywood, you never know until it appears on the screen. It looks like it's going to happen. It looks like it's going to happen. We have to start filming this summer because uh, Jennifer Lawrence has a little window in between all of her superhero stuff. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's also amazing by all accounts. Yeah, but so, who cares about her? It's, it's Destin. It's Destin. It's Destin. That, that we want to talk about. And, and, and we're proud of him, too. So there are a lot of people in the audience who uh, write, want to write. Some of them are writing students. Let's give them some advice. What, what advice would you give a writer? The best advice I ever got was from my mother, who, after having spotted her on the street, um, I got together with a couple of days ago. I said, Mom, what the heck am I supposed to tell people when they ask me about you? She said, tell them the truth. And I believe that it's the best advice anybody's ever given me. And I think it's true whether it's fiction or nonfiction. That being said, it's really hard. The truth, anybody who has siblings who's compared notes about your childhood, the truth Different is... Different parents. It's, it's, yeah. it's somebody much smarter than me said, the, li- the truth is a liquid and not a solid. And it can take on all kinds of different shapes. Um, and, and you have to figure out what is your truth. And your truth 
people can completely agree on the facts and have an entirely different story. That just sounds so postmodern, though. It's, that it's, it's not. This... It's not. It's just you. It, it, the process, and whether it's fiction or nonfiction, what what is true? What what do you believe? And and. I, I wrote the first version of The Glass Castle in six weeks and spent five years rewriting it. And that five years was trying to be true, true to what happened and how I really felt about it. Well, your, your method is blast it out yeah. and then revise, revise, and revise, revise, revise. revise, revise, revise right? yeah. So yeah. no matter how crappy it, it is. It doesn't matter how bad it is. Don't worry what anybody thinks about it. Don't worry about whether you're embarrassing yourself or other people. Get the story out. You don't know what the story is until you get it out. Then think about, well, what is the story? What is the beginning, middle, and end? What do I need to do here? Rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I didn't know what the story was. I had a bunch of wacky relatives who never made it into the final cut. I had a lot more about New York City that I ended up not writing about. I didn't know what the story was. I was shocked the first time I read back my own story. I was like, dang, this is pretty, pretty wild stuff here, you know? And, and you had the patterns emerge, and you have to spend time with it. Well, and I was even struck with how you were improving dialogue in Silver Star. Didn't you and your husband, like, oh, act it out? Well, uh, first of all, I, I highly recommend reading back anything you've written. Read it aloud for any false, any false notes. But a couple of times when dialogue didn't ring true to, to me, my husband would say, okay, I'll be Uncle Tinsley and you be Bean. And he'd read out something and say, okay, be Bean. And I'd just, like, shoot off at the mouth and I'd say, that's your line. There, yeah. go with that. So that's, that's one of the ways that we, that we came up that's with the brilliant. dialogue. Well, it, you know, it, it, it worked for us. I don't know how people, how other people write, but that was just what worked for us. But regarding secrets, a very wise man once said to me, you know, with, it's scary. It's scary. If you're looking to write nonfiction, it's scary. But a very wise man once said to me, Secrets are a little bit like vampires. They suck the life out of you, but they can exist only in the darkness. Once they're exposed to light, there's a moment of horror, but then they lose their power over you. And I have found that to be so true because these things that haunted me, these things that, that chased me, you know, you can run from these things, but they will chase you. And if you are in a position to turn around and confront these things, they not only don't scare you, you know, they... They're, they're powerless. And it's so funny, these things like rooting around in the garbage for food, which it always just, I found it so difficult to write that scene. And I must have, I, I wrote it 20 times. And it just, it was so cold. The first but it was so understandable. that you, I mean, I, I, when I heard that you didn't want that in the original version, I just thought, no, that has to be in there. Well, it has to be easy for you to see that. I couldn't see that. Huh. I was so ashamed. And many people who've had to do certain things to survive, including, and again, I don't mean to compare myself to Holocaust survivors, but people who've had to do these awful things to survive, they think they're less because of it. And the process, the magic of storytelling is that it gives you perspective on your own story. And, okay. and it makes you forgive yourself. Of course I had to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I didn't know that. Okay, now you addressed this briefly uh, a, f- a few minutes ago, but let's, let's wrap this up this way. Oscar Wilde, you quoted him before. Uh-huh. I've got an Oscar Wilde quote for you. Children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them. Sometimes they forgive them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where are you on that spectrum? I... 
I love my parents. I guess I haven't grown. <laughs> no, you know, I perhaps forgive, but again, it's not to me. It's not even forgiveness. I think they gave me incredible gifts. How can I forgive my father for being damaged? How can I forgive him for being somebody who drank himself to death? It was never about me. My mother's shortcomings, whatever they are, it wasn't about me. She wasn't doing this to be cruel. My brother got together with mom one time and tried to get her to apologize for the way we were raised. And I said, Brian, it's, you know, she doesn't see it that way. And it was a long and tearful conversation. And she ultimately said, I did the best I could. And I believe that's true. I used to think that my mom and dad were homeless by choice, but I began questioning the whole concept of choice. Maybe mom was pretended it was a choice. If somebody doesn't have the resources to make that choice, do they really have the choice? You know, she's, she's not a malicious person. Mm -mm. She never really criticized me or, or tried to tear me down. The only time she ever really criticized me is when I would criticize her. What's to forgive? Hmm. You know, she, she's, not, she's not a terribly strong woman in certain ways. In certain ways, she's very resilient. She kept food from us when she had food, which my brother finds unforgivable. She, she's damaged. She's a damaged woman. And that's, do you forgive somebody for being damaged? No, you accept it. Accepted is better to me than, than forgiveness because if I say I forgive her, in my opinion, that sets me up as a victim. And I don't see it that way. I don't, I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as somebody who got incredible gifts. Also some baggage that went with that gifts. But, you know, you know, I was invited here to speak tonight. Y'all put me up at a really nice hotel. A, a, a movie is being made of my life. What do I have to be angry about? <laughs> what is there to forgive? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. <laughs> Jeanette Walls, Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you. 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 Way to go. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.